Please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation, last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 9, as we continue to make our way through this book. Well, actually, I hope you're ready to read today. We're going to do all of chapter 9, so we'll have 21 verses, and we actually will start at the end of chapter 8, so 8.13 to 9.21. And I want to remind you once again, this is the word of our Lord. So let's attend to it as such. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. And he was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have the king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision. And those who rode them, they wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. But these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver 
and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word. Even with heavy passages like this one, we pray, Lord, that you would you would teach us, your spirit would soften our hearts. That you would lead us to repentance where we need to repent. You would show us the end of the wicked, which is no longer our end because of Christ. Help us to trust you. Help us be encouraged by this passage and this time together, and may we rejoice even in your wrath so that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever heard a gospel presentation that goes something like this? I have good news and I have bad news. First, the bad news. The bad news is that God is a God of wrath. But the good news is that Jesus came to save us from that wrath of God by giving himself for our sins. I bet we've all heard something like that, right? Hopefully, not at Sovereign Grace. I actually agree with almost everything I just said. There's one part that's glaringly wrong. I mean, Jesus did come to save us from the wrath of God, didn't he? And the gospel does have a kind of good news, bad news element to it that we do speak of often. But is it really bad news that God is a God of wrath? Is it bad news that God hates sin and evil? Certainly from our perspective, it seems like bad news as objects of his wrath. And his wrath rightly rests upon it. But is God being a wrathful God really a bad thing? I thought about this a lot this week, and I think if Christians were honest, a lot of Christians would probably even say yes. I've heard Christians talk about the wrath of God as if they're kind of embarrassed by it. At minimally, they're just uncomfortable talking about it. I don't know if they would come out and say these things, but most Christians probably even think, well, you know, the wrath of God is something we really don't like. We didn't really have a choice. It's in the Bible. So we just tolerate it. We're stuck with it. We accept it. We declare it as bad news just so that we can get on to the good news. That's how we deal with the wrath of God. Please hear me on this, and I, I mean this literally. I know we say literally for everything now, but everything Everything about God should be celebrated. Every aspect of his character, every attribute should be loved, rejoiced in. He should receive worship for all that the Bible reveals about him, especially his wrath. I know everything in us at times might be opposed to a God that's wrathful, especially towards us when we feel justified in our sins. And our culture, and I dare say even our church culture at time, doesn't really help wanting to push the wrath of God aside as if it's unimportant or, or unnecessary. But brothers and sisters, we have to come to terms with this very central and very important attribute of God. The Bible makes no sense apart from the wrath of God. The gospel makes no sense apart from a God who is wrathful. What in the world are we saved from if God is not a God of wrath? So I hope as we study this passage in Revelation 9, I hope we can move beyond acceptance. I hope we can move beyond tolerance if that's where you're there. 
I hope even we can move beyond understanding because I think a lot of us understand God's wrath. But I hope as we study today that we can actually get to a place where we can at least begin to delight in the wrath of God, to love the wrath of God in a way that leads us to worship God. It's not easy, by the way. But Revelation 9 can really help. Because this passage will show us the end or the destruction of the wicked. It shows us the end, the final judgment of the wicked in a way. It's a precursor to the very final judgment. But it shows us that as an answer to the prayers of the saints. So that's what we'll talk about today. The end of the wicked according to the prayers of the saints. Now if you've been here the last few weeks, we've already got started with that, right? In chapter 8, we have the silence in heaven. This shocking silence where God stills the heavens to hear the prayers of his saints. And as the incense is mixed and these prayers go up to God, how does God answer their prayers? He brings down wrath from heaven in the final seal judgment. And then last week, Jason took us through the first four trumpet judgments, also the wrath of God, which looked an awful lot like the plagues we see in Egypt. Hopefully you remember those from last week. Well, this week, it's going to take it to a whole new level, a whole higher level of terrifying intensity, as you probably got a taste of when we read this. Look at verse 13 in chapter 8 one more time. Look at what this says. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, and it said, woe, woe, woe. You read the Gospels, you know when Jesus pronounced woes, this is a sign of a curse, a judgment. And this is a triple woe. This is an ultimate judgment. It's actually, I think it's an anti-gospel in a way. When things are repeated in Scripture, like we saw a few chapters back, the creatures around the thrones proclaiming, holy, holy, holy. This is the ultimate curse. One commentator said it's like saying doom, doom, doom. And who receives this curse? You see 13 again. All those who dwell on the earth. Now I hope you've been paying attention because the earth dwellers we've talked about, it's not just people that live on the earth, just normal human beings. These are people that are committed to idolatry, ungodliness. And they're committed really to worshiping the creation rather than the creator. It's almost become a technical term in Revelation. It appears seven times as earth dwellers. Well, they're the ones that are going to be targeted with this woe. All three woes. These wicked earth dwellers. The first four trumpets, you'll notice, were really targeting creation in a way. They did affect the wicked. And they did actually harden them in a big way. But it was really outside of them. Well, these last three woes, these last three trumpets are going to affect them more internally, spiritually. Again, hardening their hearts like Pharaoh and tormenting them in judgment. And that's what we'll see in these last two trumpet judgments. So we have two trumpet judgments we want to go over. The first, woe and the fifth trumpet, verses 1 through 12 in chapter 9. That's the distress of the unsealed. The distress of the unsealed. And then the second woe, or I guess it would be the sixth trumpet, would be the death of the ungodly. So the distress of the unsealed and then the death of the ungodly. Now you heard it when I read. There are so many details here, so many things that we will not have time to go into. So I really just want to answer two questions about these judgments. 
who is bringing the judgment, and then what exactly is this judgment? What is this wrath? And so let's look at verse 1 in chapter 9 as we see the distress, the distress of the unsealed. Verse 1 again. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. And he was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from this shaft. This incredible picture of judgment. But did you notice who is bringing this judgment? Whose wrath is this? In a way, it almost seems like this fallen star, doesn't it? He seems to be the one bringing this judgment out of the pit. Well, who is this fallen star? Well, the ESV doesn't give us a great translation here. Actually, the New American Standard is a little bit better because it gives it a past tense. It says a star that had fallen. It's past tense. It's actually the perfect tense in the Greek. And so it's a picture of what has happened. So who is the star then? When did this star fall from heaven? Well, Luke 10, if you remember, there was a great story about Jesus and his disciples. He sent his disciples on kind of this short-term ministry trip, kind of a pre-great commission, said, go preach the gospel, go cast out demons, go heal the sick. And they come back and they're so excited, Jesus, you wouldn't believe the demons listened to us. We preached the gospel, people repented. Do you remember what Jesus said? Luke 10, 18, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus tells us two things there. One, Satan is this fallen star. We can get that again as well from Isaiah 14. I think Jesus is even alluding to that. But notice what caused Satan to fall from heaven. Jesus is saying, my ministry is casting Satan down in judgment. My life, death, and resurrection is meant to destroy the works of the devil. And as the gospel is preached to the ends of the earth, and the church grows, Satan stands condemned. He's the star that has fallen. We get that clearly again in Revelation 12 as we'll get there eventually down the road. But we also see it in verse 11. Look down to verse 11. We can see this is clearly Satan here. He is the king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, which means destruction. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon, which means destroyer. It's clearly Satan, right? That's the way Satan works, to destroy things. So is Satan the one bringing this judgment? Is this his wrath? Kind of. Kind of in one way. But this is an important part that we don't want to miss. Look back at verse 1 again. How did Satan open this pit? Right at the end of verse 1. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Where in the world did Satan get that? Who would give Satan this key to unlock this pit? Revelation 1.18 says Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. This is Jesus giving Satan this key. This is the wrath of the Lamb. This is the wrath of God we have here. And what we have, if you noticed in this passage, you remember us talking about those divine passives we've been seeing through the book? We have them once again. He's been given this key. Look at verse 3. They were given power, right towards the middle there, right? Verse 5, they were allowed, and then they were not given power to kill. So all these passives, is just trying to give us a hint, God is the one who's revealing his wrath. This is the wrath of God. 
Satan is there, Satan is active, but he is the instrument, the instrument of God's wrath. And nothing more. God's in charge of all of it. He's the one bringing this trumpet judgment on the world. What an encouragement, by the way, to us. Our greatest adversary, our greatest enemy at the end of the day is nothing more than a fierce dog at the end of God's leash. Luther, I believe, said repeatedly, the devil is still God's devil. We see that in Job. God's in control of all this. This is the wrath of God being revealed, even though Satan's the one just opening the pit. So what is this wrath? What is this wrath that God is unleashing through the devil? Verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. There's that plague imagery we got from before. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. Jump down to verse 9. It explains a little bit more of what that is. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, what looked like crowns of gold. Faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. Now, if you know anything about Revelation, if you studied this before, this is where people begin to go crazy. With this book, I've actually seen a picture of somebody trying to draw this. It's, it's terrifying, but it's really strange, almost cartoonish. We're not meant to see these images together in that form, right? It's symbolic. But people even go crazy with the symbolism. Are those crowns turbans? Are those the Muslims attacking the Christians? Or the locusts, these loud noises and human faces? Those have to be pilots of Apache helicopters, right? You might have heard some of this stuff. But I, I say this ridiculousness to remind you once again we're not meant primarily to read this with a newspaper in our lap or a history book in our lap we're meant to read this in light of the old testament and john john is just piling image after image of judgment taking them from all over the old testament here putting them together in this terrifying picture of judgment So much so that we don't have time to go into all of it today, so I'm going to give you homework. Go read Exodus 10. That's where the locust plagues happen in Egypt. Go read Deuteronomy 28, these covenant curses that the locusts and the pain, especially in this passage, I think is alluding to. Especially read Joel chapter 2 and chapter 3. The darkness and the horses and the locusts, it's all there. The scorpions are all there in Joel. And really, it's this picture of unstoppable judgment terrifying unstoppable judgment but the strange thing is the way john presents it there's almost this false attractiveness to it did you notice that they wear crowns like rulers and kings false leaders that people would want to follow they have human faces they're like us unthreatening they're not as scary as those locusts They have women's hair, this picture of attractiveness in some way. John's saying these demons, these demonic locusts draw people in under false pretenses. They draw people in with lies and deception. And we shouldn't even blink at that because who's the one letting them out of the pit? It's the father of lies, isn't it? Satan himself, the ultimate destroyer and deceiver, the one who disguises himself as an angel of light. He's the one leading this charge, even though God is the one behind it. And what do they do? Look at verse 4. 
they were told, that's the locusts, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. That's weird. If you know locusts, that's kind of their thing. They destroy vegetation. What do these locusts do? Well, they harm only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. If you remember chapter 7 a few chapters ago, that's the church. That's the people of God. So these locusts, this terrifying horde of judgment, can't touch the church. This has to be one of the worst, saddest ironies in Scripture in some way. Satan releases this judgment on who? He releases them on his own followers. God basically says, here you go, do your worst. Satan attacks his own people. It's a sobering reminder, I think, to us that Satan is not ever on our side. Never our friend. He may offer to be an ally. He might try to give us something that we think we need, but he is out for the destruction of humanity. And God will let him do it to his enemies. Look at verse 5. They were allowed to torment them for five months. Now, that's not literal there. I believe that's kind of the life cycle of locusts. So what John, I think, is saying here is they're allowed to torment them for a season, for a time. But you'll notice, again, they cannot kill them. They can't destroy them completely. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings. What is this torment? What is this destruction that he brings? That it's not death itself, but it's so painful that it's described in this way. Well, remember, this is demonic. This is spiritual, psychological torment here. I think in a lot of ways, it's a lot like what Chad was talking about this morning. That we saw in Cain. That we see in Romans chapter 1. What does God do? In an act of judgment in Romans 1.24, God gives them up to their lusts, the lusts and the impurity of their hearts, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gives them over to their sin, and it destroys them, tears them apart. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 and 2, it says this, In latter days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. These deceptive ways, these lies, turning people over to their idolatry, letting them become enslaved by it. And it leads ultimately to despair. Look at verse 6. And in those days, people will seek death. They will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Don't you see this despair in our world? Utter hopelessness? Slavery to sin? Even people numbing themselves with substances to just cover up the consequences of their sin? People are so enslaved to their idols. Even enslaved to the fear of death. Haven't we seen that on display the last couple years? So enslaved to death, but still terrified to die. Terrified to face judgment and the God who is a perfect judge. This is our world, brothers and sisters. This judgment is all around us. We see it in humanity 
We see it in God's enemies right now. This is the distress of the unsealed. Now let's move on to the death, the death of the ungodly. Verse 13, the death of the ungodly. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Another terrifying judgment. It's even increased in intensity. But notice first, who is bringing this judgment once again? We don't see the fallen star. We don't see Satan in the picture. But I hope you can see God behind the scenes even here. This is God commanding them. This is God releasing these angels. God's the one that prepared this judgment. In fact, you can see it even as an answer to prayer. We got that in chapter 8, but God reminds us of that right in the middle of this verse. Did you notice that? Middle of verse 13. I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. That's the altar of incense. That's where the angel mixed the prayers of the saints. The martyrs praying under that altar, they rose to God praying for justice. And God says, this judgment is an answer to that prayer. I'm going to send these angels, this army, to destroy, to kill even, as an answer to that prayer. Once again, showing us that God is behind this the whole time. And what's his instrument? This time, the instrument seems to be these four angels. Now, we've learned about these angels in chapter 7. If you remember, God told the angels, hey, go to the four corners of the earth and hold back the wind. Right? Hold back the wind of judgment, saying, that wind needs to be held back for a time so that I can seal my people. I can seal the people of God and protect them. And then when they're all sealed and they're protected, we can let that wind go. We can let that wind go. And that's what's happening here. Four angels releasing this judgment. And what does it look like? It looks like a massive, massive army. Twice 10,000 times 10,000. The number is ridiculously large. In fact, literally in the Greek, it's double myriad of myriads. I don't think we're meant to take this literally. I mean, if you did take it very literally, you could translate it 10,000, 10,000. But John's point here is, look, this is a bigger army than you can count. This is a bigger power than you can even imagine. This is sent with one purpose, to destroy the wicked. And we get that even from where they come from. Did you notice that? In verse 14. Verse 14, it says they come from the river Euphrates. Now, what's that about? Does that mean that we can get on a plane and go to Iraq and go find these angels sitting right there waiting for this day? That's not what's happening here. I know some people watch the news for those kinds of things. What's happening here is Euphrates, especially for the Jews, has become symbolic really of the place of judgment, the place of torment. It's the edge of the promised land. And do you remember when the Jews were judged, when they were sent into exile? Where did the Assyrians come in? Where did the Babylonians come in? They crossed the Euphrates to kick God's people out of the promised land. Even the Romans feared this area. 
This was kind of the edge of the Roman Empire. This is where like the marauding hordes were. And so they felt vulnerable there. So the picture here is that anything that crosses this river, this picture here, especially an army like this, this was a sign of defeat. This is a sign of ultimate judgment. And that's what John's giving us here, an unstoppable force coming from the place that we know judgment comes from. But it's coming on the enemies of God. Now what do they do exactly? What is this wrath? Look at verse 18. Verse 18. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. You see, this sixth trumpet is different from the locust because people actually die. They're actually killed in this judgment, but only a third. Look at the next part of the verse. By the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. And we probably recognize fire, smoke, and sulfur. Those are all over the Bible for judgment, aren't they? But there is one place, one place in all Scripture where they all show up together in the Old Testament. Do you know where that is? Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. The place of ultimate judgment of idolatry. And John's saying, you remember how bad that was? That was the picture of ultimate judgment for my people? That's nothing compared to what's coming. That's nothing compared to this wrath that's going to come, this fire, sulfur, and smoke coming out of the the mouth of these creatures. Look at verse 19. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The focus here again on the mouths and the tails, especially the tails of a serpent, this imagery together, it's a picture of deception, isn't it? Satan, once again, the deceiver. Snakes are this picture of deception. We get that from the garden. We get that even from Proverbs. Wine is likened to a serpent because it causes delusion and deception and destruction ultimately. The Pharisees, they're called children of the devil, right? Because they lead people astray. They are like their father, the deceiver. So John is saying these words are words of deception. They're meant to destroy, but not meant to destroy only physically. Please understand this. There is a physical destruction in this somehow. There's a a killing off of one-third. But the ultimate judgment is the spiritual death that comes. The spiritual death that comes in verse 20 and 21. Look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is a terrible picture. You like to think, some people say, when somebody hits rock bottom, There's nowhere to look but up. Some people, when they hit rock bottom, they don't look up. These people are lost in their idolatry, spiritually and utterly dead. Certainly, there is a warning in this for us. This would be our destruction if we follow the lies of Satan, if we believe the deception, if we give ourselves to idolatry. This is our end. So repent. Repent while you still can. 
That's part of this here. But this section, these last two verses, they function primarily as a final verdict against God's enemies. They've ignored every trumpet judgment. They've ignored the destruction of the world. They've ignored the judgment that tormented them. And they still haven't repented. They have no excuse. They've had every chance to turn to the Lord. And they believe the lies of Satan. They've turned themselves over to idolatry. And what is the result? They've been hardened just like Pharaoh. Spiritually dead to God. In fact, guilty of both tables of the law. I don't know if you noticed that while we went through that. Verse 20 really highlights the first four commandments, doesn't it? Idolatry, not worshiping God. They're guilty in that sense. And the second verse, verse 21, really highlights the second table of the law, the last six commandments. The adultery and the the sins against the others. And what he's saying there is, look, they've broken them all. The Ten Commandments stands to condemn them. And what's the result? They become just as foolish and blind and ignorant as the very idols they worship. This is the picture of ultimate judgment all the way through the Old Testament, isn't it? Listen to Psalm 115, verse 4. Their idols are the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but they do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Now listen, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. This is the end of the enemies of God. Deaf and dumb just like their idols. This isn't the final judgment But this is justification for God's final judgment in the last woe, the last trumpet judgment to come. And maybe you you hear this and you think, did I miss something? Was, Was I supposed to delight in this? This might happen to people in my family. This might happen to people in this room. How am I supposed to delight in this horrible end of people I know? Well, there's three ways, two of them I've already mentioned, that are really important as we saw in this passage. The first one is God's in control of all of this. This is justice. This isn't just arbitrary acts of wrath. That's not the way God is. God is just. They've had plenty of chances to repent. God's in control of all of it. Nothing he does is unjust, even his control of Satan. His chat told us this morning, this is the second way, God will take care of every injustice. Believers, everything that's happened to you, every difficulty, every trial, every sin committed against you, God hears. God knows. God doesn't let anything slide. He's the perfect judge. And he will punish it in the end, completely. And one other thing we can learn, we can learn from Asaph. As remember Asaph, Psalm 73, he, he struggles with God's justice in a way as he's lamenting. We don't have to turn there. Let me just describe it. If you remember, he's basically asking God, Lord, where is your judgment? Why do the wicked prosper? They have no pains, no troubles until death. They mock you, God. They mock your law. I know you see this. Where are you? Why don't you do something about this? 
And do you remember where it turns for him? Where he actually begins to repent and even take joy in the wrath of God? Do you remember what flipped it for him? Psalm 73, 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Asaph got a glimpse of the destruction of the wicked, a glimpse like we see in Revelation 9. He realized the prosperity of the wicked is a myth. It's a lie. It's a sham. They will not prosper. God will make them fall to ruin. They may look like everything's together right now, but they are being destroyed. They are being judged. Even if you can't see it on the outside, spiritual and demonic judgment as God turns them over to their idols. And Asaph's conclusion is that God's people do not have the same end. God's people can say, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Brothers and sisters, do you see the end of the wicked here? Do you realize this is not your end in Christ? This is not my end. This is what we deserve. This is the torment we deserve because of our sin. But in God's grace and mercy, He sent His Son to live the life we failed to live. To go to the cross and to take this judgment upon Himself. This torment upon Himself. Crying out in the very despair that we see in this passage when He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that in our place. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death so that we are not destroyed by the wrath of God. We are not tormented like this because Christ was tormented in our place. In Christ, we will not face death and destruction. In fact, every hardship now only makes us more like him. Brothers and sisters, in this we rejoice. Jesus is the one who took the wrath of God for us. And he will come again to bring ultimate justice and wipe away every tear for his people. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time together, this passage. Lord, help us to delight in your wrath as tough as it may be sometimes, Lord, to know that you are good and just and you deal with the injustice of the world is comforting, but we especially rejoice that Christ has received the justice that we deserve. Help us to rejoice in that regularly and praise you because of that gift we've been given. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.